Hello, my name is Toby Miller. This is the Cultural Studies Podcast, and my guest today is... Michael Dalley Carpini. Thank you, Michael. Normally, I prompt people to say that, and I forgot to in your case. I think it's because we've known one another for so long. But you sure. stepped well, in... your, your, your gesture, which people can't see, made it clear to me that that's what I was supposed to you do. You stepped in like the trooper you are, so thank you. <laughs> So, Michael, it's it's really great to see you. We've been friends for, I don't know how long. We certainly met about 30 years ago, but I would say been in infrequent but often quite deep contact for 20 years, let's say. Absolutely. Yeah. Easily, yeah. easily, yeah. yeah. And uh, all of that uh, empowers me to ask you <laughs> what I would ask you if I'd never met you. How are you? What are you thinking about? What's going on for Michael Deli Carpini? Well, thanks for asking, Toby, and it's great to see you. Um, uh, I'm doing well personally. Um, as we talked about a moment ago, I am at the beginnings of uh, formal retirement, though I hope to continue to do work in the areas that I've worked in for now 40 years. Um, and uh, personally, my life is going really well. Um I am in despair about the state of the world right now. And I find myself thinking a lot about a variety of things that are happening from the aftermath of COVID to the war in Ukraine to the mess that we see in the Middle East and the tragedy that's unfolding there uh, to the state of American politics and more broadly beyond American politics. So that's what I focus on mostly and find myself wondering what we do as academics to address these issues and is it meaningful or not? Um, I don't want to sound like I'm, it's all doom and gloom. I'm happy to be a Philadelphian and I love following Philadelphia sports, as you well know, um, and they've been doing pretty well. They're, they're major professional sports teams. Um, I have a good life personally in, in my day-to-day life. I'm looking forward to getting back to doing some research after a long career, as you know, in administration. Part of me is happy to have stepped away from uh, formal academia, given the state of what's going on at Penn in particular, but in higher ed um, more generally. So um, I find myself at a reflective point in my life as to both what it means to be a citizen what it means to be an academic who studies political communication, um, what it means to uh, to be alive in the mid-21st century in a world that seems like it's gone a little crazy. So that actually sounds quite demoralizing in certain ways, sports aside and private life aside, both of which are tremendously important. <laughs> uh, you know, we laugh, but they're very important. Yeah, to, yeah. Certainly private life is important to everybody and sports are very important to people like you and me and to many others. But there is something quite horrifying that is haunting what you're saying, I think, or a series of things. Are they disarticulated or do you see a connection between, you know, Ukraine, Trump, Penn, Gaza, as it were. And I should say we're having this conversation at the, a moment when some of the most important, interestingly enough, private universities in the United States are roiled with controversy over, and I'm at a distance, so it's not really for me to say, but you can fill this in or correct it as necessary, 
conflicts on campus between different groups about feeling secure, feeling insecure, the interests of Israel, the interests of Gazans, the notion of anti-Semitism, the notion of uh, Islamophobia, and the way in which what was once one group of people damning cancel culture suddenly becoming the group that prefers to see cancel culture. So uh, perhaps you could just comment on what yeah, I just Yeah, you put your finger on it. So I'll start with your point about sounding demoralizing or demoralized. I mean, yeah. I, I admit, uh, I think it's a phase. I'm a very optimistic person. Yes, I that's continue, how I see I, you. I, yeah. I, I continue to have hope. But I am at a um, somewhat demoralized moment for a lot of reasons that we can talk about. But one of them are one of them is that I do see a connection between the litany I just gave you of things that keep me up at night. Um, the, let's just talk a little bit about the um, the the issue of free speech campus culture that's taking place in the United States, which has been taking place for several years now. And I don't think that's a coincidence, mostly affecting public institutions where state legislatures and others have greater sway over what happens on campuses. But um, but I can, I, you know, we talked about our, our mutual friend, Bruce Williams, and he and I talked periodically. And we were, we over the last couple of years, we've been talking about what's going on, say, in the state of Florida, uh, in some institutions in other states, Texas, for example, and how higher education is under assault. And we jokingly say that, you know, for places like University of Pennsylvania or University of Virginia, where Bruce teaches or Harvard, um, we're kind of immune to all of this. But yes, isn't it a shame? Ho, ho, ho. Yes, exactly right. And I and so yeah, so yeah. to your point, um, and I don't know, is it worth for your listeners to just say a word about what actually has happened over the last Please couple do. of years? Yes. So what's happened over the over the longer period is there has been what I would call an assault on higher education designed to limit any discussion um, that is what we might call progressive and um, realistic about the warts that American society has, Mm -hmm. issues of slavery and race that continue to haunt the country, gender issues, um, issues of class, that any mention of those things is under attack in both um, primary education and higher education in the United States. And it's been most noticeable at the state uh, institution level, where, as I said, governments have, have more control. But recently, that has moved more directly from general criticism that you would hear about overly liberal Um, elite institutions like those in the Ivy League, like the University of Pennsylvania, to a more aggressive and, I think, organized attack. And what set it off most recently uh, was the the Hamas attack. Gruesome, I think, personal views, I think most people would agree with this, completely unacceptable attack on civilians in uh, Israel that killed maybe 1,200 Israelis, followed by an atrocious, in my mind, 
response by Israel, not just to protect its own security, not even to exact a certain amount of retribution, but an, a, an attack that is is devastating the lives of Palestinians uh, in Gaza and the West Bank, uh, and doing it in a way that um, uh, that uh, is layered on top of a of a hundred ye- hundred years of uh, relationships that uh, have been problematic for Palestinians to begin with. So it's really hard to to have anything that um, is not, uh, that that is at least subtle in understanding that there's a lot wrong in both sides of what's going on here. And it's a terrifically complex and horrible situation. But as a result of that, there's been among college students a upsurge of pro-Palestinian sentiment um, in a way that has also, and I will acknowledge this, has also uh, um, revealed an underlying anti-Semitism that is really problematic. There was, there is in the United States, in my mind, a conservative cabal that has been ready to pounce on a situation like this. And what has happened, again, in my mind, is that a combination of um, conservative uh, media personalities, a a mainstream media that doesn't know how to deal with these kind of issues, and a revolution among high-level donors to major universities that contribute lots of money um, to put into place an effort to, number one, attack the presidents of these universities, who admittedly have not done a great job, um, and secondarily, though, to use that as a wedge into what is now going to be a major debate about um, what the role of donors are at universities, what the role of faculty is at universities, whether or not uh, DEI initiatives are um, legitimate and should they be continued. Um, It's a real attack on the faculty control of universities. And there is going to be a moment over the next few years where we'll see what higher education in the United States looks like that I think is currently under attack. Last thing I'll say about this is um, that it is under attack in some ways for good reasons. Um, I don't want to sound as if I'm saying, just leave us alone. Let us go back to the way things are and we'll be fine. Faculty on campus have not always done a great job dealing with these kind of issues. Administrations have not done a great job dealing with these kind of issues. But the result of it is that they've lost their moral, ethical, uh, ability and, and and platform for persuasion and uh, higher education is under attack right now. And I guess the precipitous moment that shocks us into seeing how this is affecting the private sector came with testimony recently before Congress. Yes, right. By the presidents of, of Penn, which, as you said, is an Ivy League and, and private. Harvard, which is Ivy League and private, but super wealthy, Penn is wealthy, but Harvard is uber wealthy and basically can withstand any threats by donors. That's right. Whereas Penn probably couldn't survive in its current iteration without ongoing money. And then MIT was the third institution that is uh, more of a technology institution. I, I, you know, it's not considered Ivy League, but it is a a very prestigious university that is more, they, they have a full 
curriculum, but are more science and technology oriented. oriented. Yeah, they're not That's what right. we would call a traditional university in the sense of the universe of education. That's right. That's right. The, at the moment, the outcome of all of this is that these presidents made pretty full-throated defences of free speech in a sort of J.S. Mill way, but they didn't sufficiently explain the basic limits to the Mill line, i.e. freedom of speech ends when it is used in a demagogic way that is liable to or designed to create or sustain violence against others. They didn't make that clear enough in their testimony, maybe because they're not political philosophers. Yes. And so because they didn't talk enough about means of protecting those who feel vulnerable on campus, in this case, some Jewish folks, the immediate response was that the president of Penn resigned. That's correct. And resigned under pressure. It, it will never know, but there was a good chance she was going to be essentially asked to leave, fired if she hadn't resigned, but she resigned. And, and I want to say a couple of other things, if it's okay, Toby, about, about that hearing, because yes, the, 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 uh, the presidents gave full-throated defenses of, um, of academic freedom and free speech. They did, you, you put it exactly right, but they did not show in hum, human terms um, the uh, under a deep understanding of the need, the, the fears of um, Jewish and um, Islamic, but Jewish in the case of this hearing uh, students and showed no really emotional attachment. They were overly lawyered up, I think, in the sense that they gave very legalistic answers to the questions and and it was a hearing that gave them little chance to have nuance because basically they were five minute segments Four of the minutes were the congressperson giving a speech. And then they were asked to answer in 30 second bites uh, or in yes and no answers, really complicated issues. So it was a I mean, it was a shit show from uh, in, in, in a variety of, of different ways. And the key moment, the moment that really led to President McGill essentially having to resign, unfortunately, in my mind, was when um, when all three presidents were asked if students were to say um, we should have a genocide against all Jews, would that be considered a violation of your university's rules? The answer they gave, which is technically right, was it depends on the context and whether it's pervasive and threatening. But you can see why that's not the kind of answer alone in a 30 second bite that would resonate. And so it really was uh, President McGill's downfall and caused great consternation for the other two. two the other so, and, and, uh, thank you very much for giving that. Profound insight, Michael, because at this distance, relying on very much secondary reportage, I had no idea that these were 30-second reactions to quite lengthy questions. None at all. I had assumed wrongly that these were statements. That no, what, there, there were all three of the presidents gave written statements, which are available online and I highly recommend reading, and that are quite good. Um and the the uh, the panel of the Congress people um, 
were told that they would each get five minutes and they should ask short questions so that the respondents, and this would be, would have a chance to answer. That meaning if, if, if someone would follow that and asked a 30 second question, it would mean each of the three presidents, plus there was a expert in um, uh, Palestinian uh, Israeli relationships there. So they would each get a minute maybe. So that would be the longest they would get. But in reality, the the question answers basically gave speeches and uh, gave raised concerns. And then the longest I think any of them ever had was 30 or 40 seconds to answer. And often they were told to answer simply yes or no to the question rather than. In terms of diversity and inclusion and equity and so on, a relevant point here is that for the first time, the president of Harvard is an African-American woman. That's right. And I think for the second time, the president of Penn was a white woman. This will be the third time that there was a white woman. The past two presidents were white women. But this is the first time, to my knowledge, I could be wrong about this, that it is a um, a Catholic white woman. And there was a there's been some really interesting pieces written in the uh, local Philadelphia paper about to what extent These here, you know, first of all, whether McGill is the one president who stepped down in part because she was she's very new to Penn. So she doesn't have a constituency yet. Uh, uh, President Gay at Harvard is new to the position, but has been at Harvard and a dean a really long time. Um, And um, same thing with uh, president of MIT. Uh, so that there is and that they were all three women. So there was a moment when one of the Congress people was asking a question of one of the presidents and said, I'm going to have to stop there because I want to talk to the gal from the University of Pennsylvania. So that's the level of respect or lack of respect that you often saw in this hearing. And so there's really there's gender and racial issues and even ethnicity and religious issues underlying this. But to me, those are important. But the big thing, you know, whether or not a president survives or not is less important in my mind, although I feel terrible for President McGill, than what the aftermath is going to be at all three of these universities and at other universities across the country. And I don't think, you know, your point about Harvard having enough enough money if it weren't for the fact that I would have thought that Penn had enough money and was and because it was private would be immune from some of these things, I'd completely agree with you. But I think every major university in the United States is now going to have to uh, is going to be under assault and needs to use this moment to think carefully about where they what they where they stand on issues of DEI, where they stand on issues of faculty governance, where they stand on issues of um, uh, academic freedom, free speech, what our mission is um, uh, to educate students in these very difficult times that we have right now. Moving away from universities for a moment, can I pick up on your remark about Catholicism? Yes. Um, Given your last name is Deli Carpini. Yes. Many listeners will assume that you are Italian-American. That is true. You come from a Catholic background. That is also true. Many listeners will not know that there was massive prejudice against Italian-Americans and Catholics 
right across the United States, and that there were actually some affirmative action preferential arrangements in place in, in various parts of the country to try to deal with this. So can I ask you about that? Because one aspect of this that may surprise some listeners is that in the United States, sometimes the term Christians excludes Catholics, and sometimes Catholics exclude themselves from the term Christian. Could you unpack that a bit for us? Yeah, I'll do my it is best. Actually, it's a sleeper issue in what you were talking about. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, and there's a lot packed into what you asked, Toby. So a little bit about my background myself, since that's part of what led to the question. So I am a first, first and a half generation American. My father was born in Italy. Um, he was uh, he came over with his father, my grandfather, when he was a teenager. While he was still in Italy, he um, but was old enough. He was a goat herder. Um, his um, he had less than a high less than a grade school education, though he got a GED in the U.S. My mom was born in the United States, got a high school degree, but she was. Um, uh, her parents were Italian, born in Italy, um, and uh, they were both, I would say, devout, maybe a little strong, but they were practicing Catholics. And I mm-hmm. was raised, went to Catholic uh, grade school, Catholic high school. Um, I'm not a practicing Catholic now, but uh, many Catholics who are not practicing say that as if they're not affected by the fact that they were raised <laughs> Catholic. Uh, you can never not be affected by the fact that you're raised Catholic. And in the United States, and in my own experience, since I'm 70 years old now, there has been um, prejudice against Italians and Italian-Americans. Stereotypes. Um, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, where I now teach as an undergraduate. Um, the I was one of the very few Italians that went at that point. Um, it's, it's a little more common now. Um, so yes, and there has been the Italian-Americans have nothing like the experience that African-Americans have had, but the single largest lynching that ever took place was actually in Louisiana, and it was Italian-Americans, Italians who who were lynched. So, um, again, I don't want to make the comparison. Uh, The lives of Italian-Americans, even from the start, has been much better than it has been for African-Americans, but there has been longstanding prejudice against uh, stereotyping of, of Italian-Americans. So so I'm well aware of the implications of that. And Catholics are a different breed of Christians. Um, they're both in terms of their practices, in terms of their traditions, in terms of being, in their minds, most closely connected to the origins of Christianity. Um, their views tend to be more diverse than born-again Christians, I think it's fair to say, but virulently anti-abortion. And um, uh, and each brand of Catholicism, whether it's Irish Catholicism or Italian Catholicism or some other ethnicity Catholicism, tends to have a little bit of a different flavor to it, but a more of a working-class background and roots. So it, it's embedded in class as well. Um, but religion plays a really important role in America. And when you talk about religious people or talk about Christians, often Catholics are different in their opinions and different in their backgrounds and different in the way that they kind of 
make public uh, their, their their views. That leads me on to asking you about what's been a big part of your life, and that is public opinion yeah. and ways of communicating to and from the public. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the research you've done and sure. the way you're seeing those questions today. Absolutely. Because it's always been important, but they're national and international obsessions now. Yeah, I, I, it, it's one of the reasons why I'm both excited. I often say, and this is a simplification, that this is the best time I could imagine, certainly the best time in my life to study democracy, public opinion, and communication, though it may be, and, and politics, though it may be the worst time to be a citizen in, in, a, in a democracy. Um, this is the so, Jelly Carpini paradox. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that I'm privileged, that I get to study these things where, as a well-off, older, white American, um, many of the things that I study are deeply problematic, but don't affect me day to day in my life. And I have to always be aware of that. But to answer your question, so I think about the work that I've done over the 40 years that I've been both a political scientist and a communication scholar as being centrally about the role of the citizen in democratic society and the factors, both individual, collective, and systemic, that encourage or discourage or act as a barrier to citizens being able to have power in their democratic qualities. And I've done that. This kind of has come together in the way that I'm putting it now, but I've done that by looking at a variety of different topics, almost always focusing on public opinion. Um, but I've looked at, gener you know, part of my work has been on generational politics. So I've written a fair amount about how different generations in American society have thought about and interacted in the political world in different ways? And is there something different than just being old or young, but something about being born into a particular moment that puts a stamp on the way certain cohorts think about the political world? So I've studied that. I've studied political knowledge, what Americans know about politics, and does it matter if you're an informed citizen or not? And I've done a lot of work in that area with colleagues. I've studied political de deliberation and political talk, how citizens talk about politics, how often they talk about politics in what settings, and what is that experience like, and what does it do to the way people, how people's opinions are formed. And I've looked at um, the impact of, um, of popular culture on politics with a particular focus, this is the work I've done with Bruce Williams, with a particular focus on how the intersection of economic and political change with technological change has led to a blurring, um, in good and bad ways, we argue, of the world of culture and the world of politics. So those are kind of the areas that I've studied, but it's always been with an eye towards what does this mean for the ability of citizens to have a meaningful voice in the, in my case, it's almost always looking at the United States, but uh, in the political worlds that, that they that they live in. And what I'm thinking now, and, that, and 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 all that work, I should say, has something of a hopeful 
optimistic, if still always grounded in a real in a realism element to it, that um, was always looking for what you know, looking at what's wrong, but always with an eye towards if we can figure this out, we can make it better. Um, I was uh, I was I turned sixteen the day Nixon resigned. Ah. And I was sitting around, a, I was sort of, sort of raised by a democratic, wealthy Jewish family in New York. And sitting around the television, which was normally not on, but had to be on this occasion, and being told by the patriarch of the family, and I say patriarch in this case, not in a critical way, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the triumph of uh, U- yeah. the U.S. Constitution and politics. Yes, yes, yep. I, exactly so, and and the heyday of journalism and belief that journalists could make a difference, and applications to journalism schools went up after after the Watergate yeah. era. Um, and now it's the major that most U.S. graduates who did it wish they hadn't. And <laughs> salaries are down. Uh, jobs jobs are, are fewer. Newspapers are closing. Um, but if you're doing PR, Michael, jobs are up. Yeah, and salaries are up. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics says that's the place to be. That's right. And and, and 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 this is maybe me showing my optimistic side as well. I think it's important to not see that as, oh, isn't this generation of students really greedy and uninterested? They're they're in they inherited this this world. When yeah. I teach undergraduates who are interested in communication, Many of them would love to do something socially and politically and publicly meaningful in the work that they do. They just are realistic about about where right. the and jobs their parents are. are saying, "Jimmy, yeah. Janie, yeah. we're paying tens of thousands of bucks a year to send you to pain. You're exactly. studying what?" So, yes. Michael, looking back at that brief uh, career review you gave, and this is a question that's impossible to answer. How does that leave you thinking about? the past, the present, and the future of U.S. public life? You know, well, just a small it, question. Yeah, and I'll, <laughs> you know, but it's the question that I'm thinking about all the time now. Yeah. It's the luxury of being reasonably well-off and older is you can kind of reflect on these sorts of things. And and every one of those points, areas that I mentioned to you is in flux right now. I mean, if you think about it, um, what do people know about politics? Well, the world of disinformation is 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 central to the world of politics right now, and the question of what do people know and um, does it make any difference is more central now than it was when I did any of the writing in that area. And what's most concerning to me, and one of the issues I want to try to grapple with as I continue, I hope to move forward in my work, um, is. What I did not anticipate when I the, in the work that I did, the work that I did was was uh, I tend to be someone who is multi-method. I do qualitative cultural work. I do quantitative statistical work. The work um, on political knowledge was more statistical and quantitative. Basically, we gave people quizzes. But what we found was when people were more informed about politics, they were, quote, better citizens in almost any way you wanted to look at that. They were um, more likely to have stable opinions, but their opinions changed with new information. They were more tolerant. Um, when they voted or participated, the way they participated was consistent with their political and social views as opposed to being like tossing a coin. 
now the thing that we never anticipated and that, that Scott Keeter and I never anticipated in that work was people can know what the facts are now and and it doesn't seem to make as much difference or people don't care what the facts are. I mean, I'm exaggerating to a degree, but what we've seen in the Trump and post-Trump, maybe post-Trump era, is um, is that people, leaders can tell falsehoods. Those falsehoods can be corrected. People can accept that those falsehoods are falsehoods, and it doesn't change their opinions on the issues that they care about. And to me, that's right. To me, that's the end of the Enlightenment. Um, and so... Uh, so I want to know if that's true. I want to f- see if there's a way of yeah, understanding yeah. that. Well, for instance, I think of the Republican Party as being nominally the party of law and order. <laughs> but it's abundantly clear that it doesn't matter what any state institution does to deal with the lawlessness of Donald J. Trump. People who are on his side of things will not, as Keynes said, you know, change their minds yeah. when the facts in front of them yeah. change. The Republican Party is not the party of law and order. That's correct. That it, is absolutely it never correct. Was, but it's certainly it, not. It, that's exactly yeah. right, and it's um, and it's almost worse than that, Toby, because it's it's it, you can you can not be the party of law and order. You can you, but you can use the rhetoric of law and order, and um, in order to make the point that you want. But you can use it selectively, and it can be called out that you're using it selectively, mm-hmm. and it seems to make little difference in what people think and who people support. And to me, now, that's terrifying. I have two questions to ask you about that. They're unconnected, but I want to put them together if I sure. may. First question is, if I think back 20 years in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq, as far as I'm concerned what was meant to be still a golden era of U.S. journalism was a complete and utter disgrace. An utter disgrace. So ask you to comment on that supposed golden era and the way in which there was just a groupthink that Herbert Gantz and many others have explained. Second thing is to ask you, what role do you think new media owners who are hedge funds, not people with a notion of the public interest have to play in this and also so-called social media. So the first thing is, can you take us back to the golden era? And even before Iraq, the whiteness, (laughs) the anti-blackness, the anti-immigrant rhetoric that was dominant throughout these supposed great times, you know, how great were those times? How well-informed was the citizenry? And then on to the contemporary political economy in terms of ownership, and also the, the the lived practices of citizens. So this this is a, a really important question that you're asking, Toby, and it's connected, as you know, because you've uh, we we use your work and you and you're familiar with it, the work that Bruce Williams and I have done on the changing media environment and information yeah. environment. So to your first question, um, one of the things that motivated Bruce and I to write that book um, after broadcast news was because as the new era of, not so new now, when we started working on it, um, uh, it was new, uh, of a a more, at the time, decentralized, at the time, multimodal, uh, at the time, um, 
uh, less clearly divided into news and entertainment uh, began to develop, many people were lamenting that. And the way they lamented it was that they would go back and say, if only we could go back to the three, the era of three broadcast channels and Walter Cronkite and, um, and, and, you know, the news was the news and entertainment was entertainment. And our argument was that's crazy (laughs) that, um, that what we celebrate as the golden age um, and what we even call the golden age in our books, but in our book, but in quotes, um, was problematic in a variety of ways. Yeah. Um, problematic for all the reasons that you mentioned, that it was a hand you could put in a, in a boardroom the people who controlled what people, what citizens read and saw each each day. And they were white, middle aged, wealthy men. Um, and that while that doesn't determine everything, that's important. Um, and what they said was news was to the the advantage of that period was that in the United States, just about everybody got their news from the same place. So there was the ability of the public to be uh, equally informed, but they were equally informed in a way that privileged some kinds of information and completely discounted other information. You did not hear the voices of um, of, of lower income people, of um, of uh, people who are more diverse, of women. Um, it was a selectively golden, a selective golden age, a golden age for the portion of the of the public, white middle class, wealthy um, individuals who um, who benefit from everything else that we have in 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 society. And so our argument, even as we acknowledge and criticize the current information environment, which I'll get to in a second, is that you don't want to go back there. And if you ask me now, as problematic as the current environment is, I think it's a better information environment that we even had then because it has the potential for people without power to get the soapbox for a while. Now, the current environment, uh, when we wrote the book, it was it was clear that a new structure was forming, what we call a new media regime was coming into place, first with cable then in hundreds of stations, then with the internet and with social media, that this was going to be different. Um, but it wasn't in, uh, it wasn't clear in what ways it was going to shake out. And what we said at the end of the book, which is like 10 years old now, is don't forget this is not it's, technology plays a role, but it's not driven by technology. And in the end, political power will win out. And the question is going to be who's going to decide what this new media regime looks like? Fast forward to today, I'm troubled by by that as well. I still have hope. There are still places in this information environment for counter voices to come out. I could pick up the, the mouse on my computer that I'm talking to you on right now and go and read something from a newspaper elsewhere in the world or from a site that's non-mainstream. I get have greater access than ever to a wider range of information. But the reality is that the networks and broadcast media giants and the print giants are being replaced by now the new media giants, and they have no more interest in um, in the public good than uh, than than the past corporate controllers of the media. And so, um, what you see now is uh, a deterioration of the print media. Cont- increasingly owned by larger uh, corporations that have, as you said, 
no interest in the public good or little interest, even more importantly, that often have no interest in in the in journalism um, and are purchasing these places to uh, rake them dry and then let them close up, as many newspapers have. And you have Internet providers and the various parts of the new information environment, social media and so on, uh, like the Googles and the Facebooks and the TikToks of the world, that also have little to no interest in the in the public good. So that's deteriorating at the same time uh, that the new media environment is open, opening up places for, excuse me, for a wide range of, of voices. Yes, that's very powerfully put. I'm glad you've got a glass of water there or whatever it is. In my case, of course, it's quarter to nine. So I've got a glass of wine, which I have to read while we're talking. So I think that's beautifully put, Michael. And uh, my problem, not with your analysis, but with the situation is that in the Anglo world in particular, I find shoutiness on the left as much as the right, and not enough reportage on the part of the left. If I want sane reportage that is pro-democracy, pro-racial inclusion, pro-peacefulness, I go to the Financial Times and The Economist because they have enough resources not only to adopt the political perspectives that I want to see, although they're obviously very different when it comes to the economy from my perspectives, but also uh, to read reportage. You know, my father, amongst other things, was a foreign correspondent of The Economist for 25 years. Uh, although, you know, he came from a lower middle class background, my mother from a super working class background. You know, my mother left school at 13, never went back. But I was born into a solidly middle class existence, yeah? So the point of all that is to say that when I read counterpunch or common dreams or in these times, I don't learn very much. And it's not because the journalism's no good and the people are no good. It's that they have to spend time bloviating because they haven't got the resources to go and to coin an expression, find shit out. Yeah, that's you've, you've really hit the nail on the head again, Toby. The, to me, the, the, the battle that is going on right now in politics and the media there are two different wars being fought. There's the ideological war in the United States. That's between um, ultra conservatives, um, uh, both social conservatives and economic conservatives, and at the extremes, um, uh, a more liberal and even progressive and even left wing uh, side of American politics. And then the middle kind of trying to middle, which is evaporating, trying to figure out where they stand on these various issues. So there's an ideological war going on, but there is also a, uh, in, in and, and that plays out in the media with the, 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 the increasingly opinionated and, um, and uh, uh, ideological media environment that we live in. Um, but there's also a, I don't know, for want of a better word, a methodological war going on. It's a, how do we, how do we do journalism? How do we get information? What kind of information matters? What what are our ethical rules as we try to understand the world? Have opinions, but have opinions that are um, based on and and um, responsive to facts as best we can know them. Uh, and that is evaporating as well. And the th- important thing to realize is that with the decline of news 
it's always been the case in the United States, even in the era of broadcast news, that it was the newsprint journalists who were the real investigators, who really did the work of understanding the world and providing as best they could information that might be valuable to citizens. And and even though fewer people read print news, they're still getting information through this network system that we have that can originate from print news. So you can't just look at the number of readers of the New York Times to figure out what the influence of the New York Times yeah, yeah, is. Sure. And as newspapers, not the Times, not the Washington Post, not the Wall Street Journal, but as local newspapers evaporate, there's less of that information to even help form opinions. And so it becomes all opinion. Um, One of the things Bruce and I say in the book that we wrote um, is the effects of this new information environment. One of the potential effects is what we borrow from other theorists this notion of hyperreality, where the mediated representation of something becomes more important than the underlying facts of what it is that's being represented. And when we wrote it, we thought, well, that's probably a little extreme to say that. But in the <laughs> world, it, but think about it. That's the world we live in, right? Well, now when you read Baudrillard or Echo, it just yeah. seems banal and obvious. Yes, exactly, I, I, exactly. I recently recorded a podcast with your colleague, Victor Picard. Oh, yes, I know Victor very well. Yeah. And one of the things we talked about that I urged him to talk about really was Jim Carrey, because by which I mean James W. Carey, not the Canadian uh, actor. (laughs) He's an actor. And one of the points Jim used to make, as you well know, was he was an economic determinist, but not a Marxist. But he was also a Durkheimian. And so ritual mattered a lot to Jim. Yes. And when I read the very valuable stuff about news deserts, in the United States, the closure of local papers, the failure of local radio and TV news to thrive. One of the things I think about is how that may may connect to the growing mistrust of journalism in the United States. And not only the United States, it's actually a global phenomenon. Uh, Because in the sort of middle town fantasy of middle America, with all its flaws, you did know your local news guy. You knew the guy on the radio, the gal on the TV, the news hound burning up leather as she or he walked around town. Big difference. A huge difference. If you live in the so-called flyover states, you don't see news people very much, unless there's a natural disaster or a shooting. I think that's a really big thing in terms of the growing lack of trust in journalism. I think, you, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that um, it's, it's not a coincidence that while the trust in the media is down across all ideological spectrums in the United States, it's especially down in regions of the country and and people who are likely to be more conservative, more mid, Midwestern, um, where the, for, for all the reasons that you mentioned, James Carey and his work is a great example of this, uh, of a of, of way to think about this because of his emphasis. James was a, on the faculty at Columbia when I taught at Barter College in Columbia, and he was, we had great discussions because my work at the time was about news 
the value of news being the factual information it can provide. And James would kind of say, oh, yeah, okay, but um, it's really about the ritual. It's not the information. And when I said, you know, people, for reasons that are not that fault, people who are more working class, um, they are like le- less likely to be informed and therefore less likely to get their uh, to, to make the case for their power. Um, he would say, oh, you know, that's that's by your surveys. That's the case. But but these people know what they're talking about. They know their lived lives. They know what's what's happening. And so we'd had great discussions. But his point, which I've come to appreciate more now about journalism as ritual um, yeah is exactly right. And what is the ritual, you know, and, and it's important to realize that, okay, so we still have the media and we still have something that we call journalism. What's the ritual? And, and it has a ritual. Uh, this is but Irish ritual is, it, it, this is it's Irish romance meeting Italian statistics. It's, it's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Yeah. Yeah. But is the it? ritual of the current media is, is satanic. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's 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 terrifying. Yeah, overstating because but it's problematic. One of the things I try to explain to people around the world who focus on Fox News is to say, look, if Fox News ratings were the ratings of CBS Nightly News for a day, everybody at CBS Nightly News would be fired within twenty-four hours. It is true that this represents a fraction of interests, but the idea that it is the United States is profoundly misleading. And there are journalists all over the world who go and live in the US for two hours or two minutes or two years and write pieces forever, whether it's for the BBC or The Guardian or whoever, saying, well, that's what they're like. But I wondered if you could just for a moment reflect. I've got two more questions and then I want to finish by offering you the chance to say whatever you'd like to say. Sure. My first question is, what's your response to the fact that there are, I'm sorry, tens of millions of really progressive U.S. citizens and always have been? Yes. Um, it, 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 the the misrepresentation, the, the irony is probably not the right word, is that American politics is currently being the, the, the conservative, the ultra-conservative right represented in a certain way by Fox News is punching way above its weight in the United States, that the number of people who agree with the views of what is um, presented, represented by Fox News and other conservative outlets is a minority of the of the U.S. population. There's a big middle. It's uncertain. It's hard to describe what their views are. There is a very progressive movement in the United States, just as I'll add, there is in Israel right now, even though we paint what's going on as is Jews against um, uh, uh, Muslims and, and, and Israelis against Palestinians. It's much more complicated than that. But the United States is diverse in so many different ways, including ideologically. And um, the, it's, it's the ability to get that voice heard um that is 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 the major problem in the united states i think and my my last question from my side and then as i said i want to give you the chance to add or subtract <laughs> is if you could for people who may not be familiar with your work if you could tell them where might be the best places to go to right. find your work i mean there are at least two books wonderful books you did with bruce but lots of other pieces and other works. If you could just give a rough 
Yeah. So, so thank you for the opportunity to do that. And, um, you know, I've written a lot of articles and essays that people can look at. But when I think about if I go back to the way I described my work earlier, there's kind of a book associated with each of those components. So let me just kind of tell you what they are. The, the work with Bruce Williams, which is about the changing information environment, um, that we talked a little bit about is called After Broadcast News. Um, and that book, I think, is as good a statement about what our thinking was at that time on that topic. And I think it still holds up uh, and is relevant to the to what's going on right now. So that's that's the book on the information environment. The work I mentioned on political knowledge was Scott Keeter. Also, I think the best statement of that is... Um, uh, is in the book um, called What American, very easy to remember, What Americans Know About Politics and Why It Matters. And I think that is the best statement on that that I, that I have. Um, the work on generational politics, uh, I co-authored a book with several colleagues, including uh, Cliff Zukin and Scott Keeter, um, that uh, is called... Um, the new engagement with a question mark, and it's about generational politics in the United States. And uh, the book on public deliberation and political talk is co-authored, and it is called Talking Together. So that would be, I mean, they're they're all pretty accessible books, I think, um, and they are all well, as I said, we've ri- I've written other things and some more recent things. They all kind of make the statement that still represents what my views are. And they all focus in one way or another on public opinion and on um, the role of the citizen in democracy. So Beautiful. That, that... Thank you. And, and in fact, uh, quite a few articles are available gratis online. Yeah, that's true. Places. Yeah. And uh, there are not a lot of academic Delic Carpini's, so you should not have any trouble finding them. Uh, on online as well. That's true. With Toby Miller, you know, there's an LA porn actress who quit about 20 <laughs> years ago. Is and that Toby with an I then, I would hope? No, no, no. That, it's no? spelled exactly the same wow. way. Wow. She led the campaign to make it mandatory for heterosexual pornographic acts to involve condoms. So huh? she was an activist. I'm, there I'm, you go. Perfect. But she appears <laughs> to have curtailed her career. And the other one is a snowboarding grommet who was extremely famous and had a very spectacular romance with an Asian-American girlfriend. But when it ended, he sort of went underground and he hasn't reappeared. (laughs) Neither of those parties, as far as I know, write academic prose. Anyway, you will find other Dele Carpini's, but uh, I don't think it'll be hard to figure out which one is. Well, especially when we got Michael X. Yeah, that's right. That helps. Yep. So, Michael, if if there's something, let me know if there's something you'd like to add, something we haven't touched on, something you'd like to amplify. Well, I for me, um, I think one of the really important issues for me right now, uh, again, not unrelated to the fact that I'm in early stages of retirement and I've been doing this for a long time, is the question, what are academics for? I have always felt that the work I did would somehow be relevant to, I've always believed in understanding for its own sake that academics, um, that it's completely legit 
in an in at a university and to be an academic and do work that is just interesting and, and important for humans to just keep track of. But as a social scientist, um, I always thought that the work we do should inform the world that we should be activists. But in my mind, as an academic, being an activist as an academic means bringing our academic skills to the issue. We can, as individual citizens, we can be activists however we want. Uh, and it's important to be engaged. It's what I write about. But as an academic activist, I think one of the things we should do is bring our our knowledge and skill to issues so that we can say, this is what I believe, but this is what is actually happening, and be willing to say, I still believe these fundamental things, but to get there, I might have to rethink how to do it, to to bring our our distance to our engagement, if that makes any sense. Um, oh, wow. That's a beautiful and, uh, and, um And I worry about the way we're doing that in both ways. I worry that part of the work we do as social scientists is increasingly irrelevant. But I also worry, and this goes to your point about you know, there's a lot of blame to go around um, that the work we do as activists is not relying on our academic skill set. And instead, we're leading with our views that we as academics are falling into the same trap that the larger public is of having opinions and then trying to surround those opinions with whatever information we can to make them right, rather than letting what we think we know lead where we go with things. And I think that is if there's some as as academia and universities struggle now being forced to struggle with who we are and what we do there's a lot we have to resist but i hope we will also take this opportunity to to rethink how we do what we do and do it better than we've been doing it i mean that that would for me and that's what i hope as i think about what i want to work on and write on uh i, I hope that i will do that with that in mind wonderful thank you so much michael this would be great. Uh, I, I love talking to, to you uh, about this, Toby. I have been learning from your writings and from your talk for decades, but this has been a great opportunity to have a dialogue with you uh, in a way that others, I hope, can appreciate. And I want to ask whether you'll come back to the pod soon, actually. Uh, a, because I think there are lots of threads in the conversation that we haven't picked up. Do you pick up a thread? I guess you do. Yeah. And I would like us to do that. And B, because you are 70 years young and your <laughs> thinking is still expanding your horizons. I think that's utterly obvious to anybody who's listened to this. And so I think you'll come up with some great responses to the current conjuncture. Although, you know, it's after nine o'clock at night here and you may be giving me one of your sleepless nights with your account of what's <laughs> happened. Yeah, well, hopefully we, when we, first of all, yes. First of all, thank you for having me. Um, I love your podcast. Um, secondly, I will happily come back again. And hopefully when we come back and meet, we'll, you know, I'll be able to both say where my thinking has moved, but also have some more positive things to think about. <laughs> that would be great. Thank you, Michael. Yes. Take care. Good to see you, Toby.